0: We're going to be opening up into. We ended 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to start 1 Timothy chapter 3, naturally enough. Uh, And we're going to look at the first two verses. And as you know, if you've been in church any length of time at all, you know 1 Timothy chapter 3 is describing attributes of church leadership. And 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 talk about positive attributes. This is what we should look for. The next few verses we'll talk about, and these are things you should not be looking for, negative attributes. We're going to look at the positive ones here today. Hopefully by now we've found it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, first 2, verses. It goes like this. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop... He desireth a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. We're going to break it off right there. And if you don't mind, we'll have a word of prayer before we get started. Lord, again, we thank you for this beautiful day you've given to us. It's a day to be in your house, and it's a day to praise your name so that you can be exalted as only you deserve. We ask that you'll help us to be able to do that properly and in a fit manner. Guide us through your word. Help us to change our lives to be more in accordance with it. It's in your name I pray, amen. So as I say, today we're beginning a study of Paul's examination in the qualification for bishops and deacons. Now, Paul is very, very clear here that not just anyone can be in the position of church leadership or in the oversight in the house of God. Uh, just as we saw in chapter 2, there needs to be order in church worship. you recall that was the focus of chapter 2, order in the church service. Uh, when we get to verse 3, we're going to see that the order of that service hinges on the leadership. So, as we look at verse 1, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And it starts right off with three very short words in the Greek that are repeated here. It, we see them here. We see them four other uh, passages in the pastoral epistles. We've already seen them once. Uh, chapter 1, verse 15. We see it here. Chapter 3, verse 1. We see it chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, we will see it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, and we will see it in Titus 3, 8. Those three words are pistos hologos. This is a true saying. Pistos, this is. Ho, true. Logos, saying. Uh, and today, Paul's taken a bit of a sidestep from the discussion that we've looked at Basically, the first two chapters talking about worship. We especially focused in chapter two. And he's going to address a related issue of church leadership, which influences and how it influences worship. And when Paul says this is a true saying, he's emphasizing the importance of what he's about to say. Every other time that he uses that saying, This is a true saying. What I am about to say is of critical importance. So looking at these qualifications for leadership is supremely important to Paul. Uh, The very next phrase is translated in the King James as, If a man. This is a true saying. If a man. The Greek is ateus. That's a strictly male expression, by the way. It cannot be translated any other way. Uh, Some Bibles, the NIV in particular, there are others, say, if anyone or whoever desires the office of a bishop. uh, There's really no grounds for any kind of general neutral translation of this. This is a male expression. Atheists. By the way, as we go through... uh, Chapter 3, we're going to see this, this individual we're talking about has to be a male. It's repeated over and over and over and over again. You cannot make any mistake. I have to uh, make a point out of that today because uh, in today's society, a lot of churches seem to think that anyone can be a preacher or a teacher. This is a strictly male expression. No room, there's no room to translate it any other way. The next word is desire. If a man desire, the word is orego. Translated desire in the King James. It's an expression meaning to strive for, to eagerly pursue, to discipline oneself as if that is your passion. Orego. So, so far we've seen, this is a true saying. If a man really passionately disciplines himself to, to chase after this position... This expression, "ego" is only used three times in the New Testament. This passionate desire. The only other positive use, it's, it's akin to lust after. And yeah, that's how it's typically used. But the, the only other positive use is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, where it's describing longing after a better country. Let's look at it. If it's the only other time when it's used positively, let's take a look at that. Oh, going the wrong direction. Hebrews chapter 11:16 We got time. In the faith chapter it says, "But now they desire, Orego, a better country, that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city." That desire, that striving after, that chasing, pursuing, hunting, it's that's a strong, very urgent desire to follow a God-given goal. We're talking about following a duty that's been directed by God himself. So, if this individual, this male individual, is pursuing the office of a bishop, he's he's pursuing a directive from God Almighty. This isn't just a, you fall into the position. This is actively pursuing something God has to put into your life. So, we can see some of Paul's understanding of these very people. If we back up, remember when we were in the uh, book of Acts quite a while ago, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul's talking to these very people. What? Uh, but let me ask a little quiz here. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, what church are, is... Timothy a part of anybody remember Ephesus that's right we're at the church at Ephesus he's talking about leadership qualities for people at the church of Ephesus right so he's talking to the leaders of the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 verse 28 he's talking to the people who meet these qualifications we're talking about right now at about this same time this is about the same time frame this is exactly the people he's talking about. Let's read uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. If you back up and read the rest of the chapter, you'll see that this, he's talking to the leadership of the church at Ephesus. Uh, And here he calls them overseers. The word is presbyteros uh, in the Greek. And it's the Ephesian church. These are the very same guys Paul's talking about that have to have these qualifications in 1 Timothy. Here he says, Take heed therefore for yourselves, and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. They didn't just fall into this job. The Holy Ghost made them overseers. To feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, here in uh, 1 Timothy, the word that we're looking at is episkopos, for bishop. Both are plural, I'll bring to your attention. And we're going to see that throughout uh, all the qualifications in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. We don't ever once see singular leadership of the church not once diakonos episkopos and presbyteros are always plural there is supposed to be a plurality of leadership in the church there is not one head it's always plural the early church the reason for this is was following the model of the jewish synagogues of the day which had a group of elders as their leadership that is the biblical pattern Now, Paul here says that any man who desires this task desires a good work. The Greek word there is kalu ergo. That can be translated as noble task. Now, remember what we just said about this being a desire to fulfill a directive from God himself in your life. And obedience to God's commands ought to be a priority in every single Christian's life, shouldn't it? I got a couple of head nods. It, it should be. Every single Christian ought to be trying to pursue obedience to God's commands. Well, so why are you making a point out of that, Brother Dan? Church leadership should never be seen as a career move or as a means of self-fulfillment and especially not as a means of influencing other people. It should only be undertaken as a means of obeying a directive from God himself. Anything else can influence leadership in a negative way. If you're in this position for any other reason, it could be a negative way. So, now that we've done a... that was a pretty solid Greek study of the whole... You got the whole Greek statement there. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. We saw every single Greek word in that uh, verse. Let's move on to verse 2. A bishop must be blameless. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Verse 2 begins a new train of thought which is going to continue through verse 6. It's very similar to a listing that we can see. If you want to compare it, and I highly recommend that you do, compare this to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. Very similar listing. We'll get there when we teach through it. Uh, And I recommend you compare it this afternoon when you go back home and you're wondering what to do this afternoon. Look at Titus chapter 1 verses 5 to 9 and compare it to 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. Uh, now, I should point out that from verse 2 to verse 6 in the Greek, it's one sentence. 57 Greek words, one sentence. So what that tells me is that this is really a compilation of conditions, policies as necessary for somebody to fulfill the role of an overseer in the church. This is more like a list of bullet points than a highly polished and eloquent sentence. Paul's not trying to make an eloquent sentence here. He's, in one statement, he's saying, he should be this, he should be this, he should be this, he should be this, and he shouldn't be this, and he shouldn't be that, and he shouldn't be this, and he shouldn't be that. That's what Paul's trying to say here. It also tells me that these traits are very pointed and are very abbreviated they could be representative of a much broader interpretation. Paul's not trying to get into specifics here, and he shouldn't be doing this and, and explain it. He's trying to just list some very general guidelines, very specific point. Uh, not very specific, very general guidelines to lead you through. Paul could have said a whole lot more on the, each of these, but he's being very brief to Timothy. He's letting Timothy expand this on his own just as you and I ought to as well. Paul's only trying to point out some key reference points, you see. Not give a full, balanced, and complete statement. So, with all that in mind, this is a very brief bullet point outline Paul's giving. He starts off with seven positive traits in verse 2, which we're going to look at today. Next time, we're gonna, and probably it's going to take us two weeks probably, We're going to look at some negative traits that are to be avoided. But before we get started today, notice that these character qualities are non-negotiable. Every one of these is non-negotiable. The bishop must be. You could stop it right there. The bishop must be. The Greek word is dee, absolutely necessary, is what that literally means. This is absolutely necessary. It's conveying the idea of a moral and divinely demanded necessity. These are non-negotiables. This word's used throughout the pastoral epistles, by the way. We see D.A. over and over and over to show absolutely necessary qualifications. We see it here in uh, chapter 3, verse 2. We're going to see it in chapter 3, verse 7. We're going to see it in 3.15. We're going to see it in 5.13. We're going to see it in 2 Timothy 2.6, 2 Timothy 2.24. We're going to see it in Titus 1.7, which is part of that grouping of verses I said you should read again, and Titus 1.11. We're going to cover them as we come to them. This is the first. But remember, these are non-negotiable qualities. These are all non-negotiable. Some people treat these lists as though they're a random list of qualities And if somebody has most of them, that's pretty good. Uh, There is no debate on these. These are absolute requirements. There's to be, here's the reason, there's to be a quality and depth of godliness in church leadership because of the magnitude and gravity of the role that this, this role is. Church leaders are called to a, very specific very important role and so the first of these qualifications is blameless blameless the word is enepileptos it's found only two other places in the new testament uh, besides here found here in uh, chapter 3 and verse 2 the other two are found right here in first timothy as well so let's look at them chapter 5 verse 7 talking about widows And it says, and these things give in charge that they may be blameless. Anapalemptos. Skip over to uh, chapter 6 and verse 14. Specific advice for Timothy. He says, and thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, that's the word, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it says blameless. This person absolutely required to be blameless. So what does he mean by that? Now we should, based on our, we've been in church long enough, we know. He's not referring to sinless perfection, right? Because none of us are there. So that's, we can rule that out. How about that nobody can make any accusations against you? Obviously, it doesn't mean that either, because even Jesus would have been disqualified, wouldn't he? Have they brought accusations against Jesus? Oh, you you sit down and you eat with t- uh, tax collectors and sinners, so Jesus is disqualified because he's not blameless either. They brought blame against him, so that's not what he's talking about. So, what does he mean? No charges can stick. There's no blame that can be brought against this person that can that's legitimate that can stick. It's kind of like imagine if you would you had a president that you've been investigating for six years in six years you ought to be able to find something against him. Obviously, there's nothing that sticks. That's, blam- that's what blameless means. Uh, this person has to be of stellar character. This person has to be free from any black that can be brought up against him. Secondly, and again, this is is one I like to bring up because this is one that my old father has brought up before. Uh, The bishop must be the husband of one wife. I'll never forget one time when my father was asked what he thought about uh, women leading the church. He said he has no problem with it as long as they're the husband of one wife. Uh, And I've never been able to forget that, and it's absolutely true. This, again, is a clearly male individual we're talking about here. The husband of one wife. There is no room for debate on this. Where there might be room for debate, and I'll be right up front with you. I am a hardliner on this. Where there might be some room for debate is whether or not this man must be married to fit the role. Some people will debate that, and I will allow a little bit of debate on that. My opinion is that the person must be married, and I'll explain that in just a minute. I may be going too far, I'll confess that. I may be going too far, uh, but here's why I take the stand that I do. There is something about being married which opens one's mind to other considerations that may have to be addressed in a church setting. For instance, it's very difficult for a single man to offer advice in marriage counseling, isn't it? Until you're married, you have no idea what you're talking about. I remember getting advice in this church from somebody on how to raise Jeremiah when Jeremiah was just a little guy. And I'm sorry, ma'am, but until you have children of your own, you have no idea what this is like. Uh, And it's the same thing with marriage. I personally believe that the bishop must be married. Because otherwise he's unqualified to offer biblical advice in a lot of realms. I'm open to debate that. I, I, it, I freely admit I am a hardliner on that one. And perhaps I'm too hardline on that. So take that with a grain of salt. But that's, that's my reason. There may be a little wiggle room on that. to. If he's not married, he ought to be celibate for certain that's made very clear from other passages. Let's look over. We got time. Let's look to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Oops. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, particularly verses 7 and 8. Paul talking again, he says, "For I would that all men were even as I myself." For every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them that they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. If they're not married, they ought to be celibate. That's, that's non-negotiable. Third aspect, we beat that one enough. Third aspect is this man is to be vigilant. Some Bibles translate this as temperate. Uh, that's not really what's meant so much as making sure that he regards his duties with sober reflection, vigilant, uh, and not flippantly. There's a uh, you, You're probably familiar with it. Uh, it's down outside of Concord, Mass. Uh, you probably know it as the Minuteman statue. It's a statue that's made, uh, and it's, it's the Minuteman standing with his rifle. That statue has a name, you know. They haven't tipped it over yet, either. Uh, that statue has a name. That statue's name is Eternal Vigilance. It's the emblem of the uh, gun owners of New Hampshire. E- Eternal Vigilance. Interesting, the picture's not in... The statue's not in New Hampshire, but it's the symbol of the gun owners of New Hampshire. Eternal Vigilance. Anyway, uh, Sober Reflection before you make a decision, not making a decision flippantly. This person must be someone who's always aware of the consequences of his actions. He shouldn't be an impulsive person. shouldn't be someone who's lacking in concentration. He shouldn't be someone who's of a distracted mentality. And then fourthly, it goes on and it says this person needs to be sober. This is a very similar word. It's used only three other places in the New Testament. It's used in Titus 1.8, used in Titus 2.2, 2, and it's used in Titus 2.5. Titus 1.8 is one of those verses I told you you should read again this afternoon. Titus 1.5-9. That's the section you should read again. You might even, if you're really ambitious, for extra credit, read down to verse 11. Uh, this is not necessarily referring to not using alcohol, although it could have some bearing on it. What this is referring to is being in the right mindset. Not being flighty. Not being unstable. That's what sober means. One needs to be in control of one's decision-making ability. And not driven by your desires. I desire to do this, but what I know I really should do, that's sobriety. That's what sobriety means in the Bible. Fifth, it says this person must be of good behavior. Now, we've already seen this word used in chapter 2, verse 9, where it was describing how women ought to dress modestly as becomes good behavior. Uh, In this particular circumstance here, it means that a church leader ought to have characteristics which inspire admiration. That is somebody I want to look up to to be. That person has good behavior. This must be a person who's held in high regard to society. I would argue even outside of the church. Because here's why. We all know how destructive it is to a congregation when a pastor or an elder is found in some scandalous activity, don't we? We all know examples of that. We don't have to look too far to find a fresh one. This person, this bishop we're talking about, should be free from those tendencies. Sixthly, they should be given to hospitality. Philozenon. You know, we can we want to do a, a, one more little uh, Greek word breakdown here. Can we do just one more? Philozenon. Xenon, we hear the term xenophobe, right? That's being thrown around. Anybody you don't like is basically a xenophobe. Uh, xenon means variety, like like a lot of. Philo, the love of, philo xenon, likes everyone, loves everyone. Philo xenon, a lovable person. That's what this given to hospitality means. It's also used in Titus 1.8. The only other place that it's used is first Peter chapter 5 and verse 9. It is used as a noun. We see the noun form of it. If, you're, if you really want an in-depth Greek study, go ahead and look at it yourself. Romans chapter 12, verse 13, Hebrews 13, 2, and John 13, 20. Uh, there are other places, too, where it's used as a noun. But it's only used as a verb a few places. Church leaders need to set a tone of openness and receptivity to anyone, especially within the church. Bring them in. We're to reach out to the world, right? We're to preach the gospel to every creature. That sounds like Phil Xenon, doesn't it? We're supposed to preach the gospel everywhere. And finally, the last one I want to look at here is that this person must be apt to teach. The word is didacticos. It's used only in 2 Timothy chapter two verse twenty-four, and here. Let's look at the only other case it's used. If it's only other, ever used one other time, we ought to take the time to look at it. Second uh, Timothy chapter two verse twenty-four, it says, "But the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, didacticos, and patient." And that seems kind of common sense, doesn't it? That a, somebody who's in the church leadership position ought to be someone who's apt to teach. This is a Christian movement founded by Jesus, who regardless of what you think of Jesus, some people who don't believe that Jesus was God will say, well, he was a good teacher. Everybody agrees, whether they agree that he's divine or not, they agree that he was a good teacher. If the Christian movement was started by Jesus, who was universally regarded as a teacher, his movement ought to be led by other teachers, right? That stands to reason. That's just common sense. But it isn't always the case, is it? That isn't always the case. A lot of churches today are led by folks who don't really have a lot of teaching skills. They may be caring. They may be nurturing. (laughs) But if they aren't apt to teach, they don't fit the bill. Remember, every one of these qualifications and the ones we're going to look at the next couple of weeks, which are negative, are all non-negotiable. The bishop must be. No room for error. It's not a, he ought to have some of these. If he has most of them, he's pretty good. No, these are qualifications that are non-negotiable. He must be apt to teach. I apologize again. I'm breaking off in the middle of a sentence, but I wanted to look at the positive ones together. I think that's enough for today. Next time, we're going to look at some of the character qualities that need to be avoided in a church leader. And again, those are non-negotiable as well. Go ahead and read ahead, and I do strongly recommend compare this list with uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. Go all the way down to 11. Uh, I recommend that this afternoon. You might like to go to prayer.